Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. All right, before we start off, let's go to the Lord in prayer. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask you, O Lord, to illuminate our minds and our eyes. Help us to see the scripture that St. Athanasius relied upon. And Lord, we thank you that he has written this work to help us dive into your scripture. Help us to be ever mindful and ever diligent in getting into your word and getting to know the living word of God, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, by reading the words that he inspired through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for St. Athanasius for being bold, for being brave, for manfully taking up the cause of his baptism in which he was enrolled and enlisted into the fight and into the battle of defending the faith once delivered by professing the faith. Help us to remember, O oh Lord, the only way that we can stand firm and to defend the faith is by actively professing it and going forward. That unless we speak the truth in love, if there's no speaking, then there's no actual living, loving, or actual profession of our faith. Remind us, O Lord, that we do not profess our faith by simply gathering together quietly in groups, but by going out into the world, by being radical disciples of Jesus Christ. Help us now to learn from one of those radical disciples, St. Athanasius, and help us to dive into your written word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So St. Athanasius, you know, picking up in this uh, new section, we're two chapters into it, starting at chapter 24, but Athanasius is really, you know, switching into a section in which he's really emphasizing the resurrection of the body uh, that is affected by the death of Christ and his own resurrection. And people, you know, ask questions all the time, very similar to what he asks rhetorically in chapter 24, This is at the very beginning. Perhaps someone might even say this. If it was necessary that his death occur in the sight of all and be witnessed that the account of the resurrection might be believed, then he ought to have contrived a glorious death for himself, if only to escape the ignominy of the cross. This is a great question. People ask this all the time. Like, you know, if Christ had to die, if he had to die in order for our sins to be atoned, in order for us to have forgiveness and to be reconciled to God the Father. Why the cross? Today, you know, we were very um, desensitized to the cross. We wear it as, um, you know, jewelry, you know, as necklaces. Uh, we wear it um, as earrings, you know, as, as bands upon our hands. Uh, we put it on rosaries for those who use beads to help them to pray. But that is, you know, a horrific form of death and execution. Far more horrific than if Christians walked around with a noose, you know, representing Christ's death, or an electric chair, or a needle for lethal injection, uh, or a rifle for a firing squad. This is a horrific way and an efficient way of killing people. And so it's only natural, even in Athanasius' time, it's not too far removed from the crucifixion, uh, relatively speaking. This is in the 300s, to really see that. This is a horrific way of dying, not a glorious way of dying, reserved for criminals, for rebels, for traitors, for common thieves. Why this way? Why not a glorious day? Why not go out, as we say, you know, in a blaze of glory? You know? Why not Christ, you know, proclaiming himself king, taking up a sword, heading towards the walls, you know, and then being cut down by a Roman general? That'd be a far more glorious way of dying. It also would have been the way that the Jews expected the Messiah to have lived but not to have died, because they would have expected the Messiah to live, to have been the king. 
But instead, he takes this humble, common, and very poor way of dying. A way of death that was reserved for, typically, what you think of as either a rebel, you know, who's bearing arms, or just a common person. And once again, Christ identifies himself with just the average man and woman and dies like one of us, albeit in a horrific way. And so Athanasius takes us and points out, look, if he had done this, I'm quoting from Athanasius now, it would provide suspicion against him that he was not powerful over every form of death, but only concerning that which he devised. In other words, if Christ you planned out the way he's going to die, then it makes it seem like he's just planning it out easy for himself. And instead, Christ takes up a horrific death to die. So death came to the body, quoting again from Athanasius, death came to the body, not from him, but from plotting, that he might destroy that death which they brought upon the Savior. In other words, he points out that, remember throughout the, the scriptures, throughout the Gospels, that we hear how the Pharisees are plotting. The Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, are plotting. How might we kill him? How might we get rid of him? And so it's foisted upon Christ. Now that Christ does not foresee or know what's happening, he predicts his death after all, saying that he must go to Jerusalem to die. And even St. Paul talks about how it's fulfilling the old covenant law. Cursed is he who is hung upon a tree. And so St. Athanasius points out that he, Jesus, neither endured the death of John by being beheaded, remember John is beheaded by King Herod, a more noble way of execution, and also a very quick way of execution, typically. Nor as Isaiah was sawn in part. This is actually outside of the scripture, but was commonly believed, like, you know, throughout the Israelites and the, the church history, that Isaiah was eventually cut in two. In death, quoting again from Athanasius, Jesus might keep his body undivided and whole, and there be no pretext for those who wishing to divide the church. So Athanasius gets this beautiful, you know, <coughs> allegory from Christ keeping his body whole. Because he's really drawing, you know, because you could read this and think, well, what a random statement to, to make. But he's making a real deep connection that Christ tells us that we are his body, the church. And just as his physical body was not divided through death, so too will his church body not be divided. Now, this is a side note. Interestingly, this is why the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church will say, we're the one true church because uh, the church's body can't be divided. Christ's body cannot be divided. And this is the reason why the Reformers said, but, as St. Paul says, not all who are of Israel are of Israel. Just because you're born of the flesh and blood of Abraham does not, in fact, make you a child of Abraham. You must have the faith of Abraham. And likewise, since churches can, as sometimes do, err, as we profess in the 39 Articles, Therefore, you know, who is part of the church comes down to the question of, like, do you have your faith in your Savior, in Jesus Christ? Look to your baptism, as Martin Luther would say. Remember your baptism. Take faith in what Christ has accomplished for you. And so, while you have those in the West and those in the East, it would be kind of silly to say that, you know, circa, you know, you could pick a lot of different dates from the 800s to 1054, you could even pick up to like the 1200s and the 1400s because there was technically on paper reunion between East and West that lasted about a day and a half. All of a sudden, you could say like, well, either everybody in the West is outside the church or everybody in the East is all of a sudden outside of the church. But the Reformers you know, always pointed out to the East saying, Rome, you have abuses. You're not consulting with the East. We need to be unified in our decision making. And regardless, 
you are still brothers and sisters in Christ because we uphold the common unity of faith. Even during the Reformation, you'd have some um, rhetoric from some of the Reformers <clears throat> saying that, oh, if, if you're in Rome, then you're part of the, the Church of Hell, the Church of Satan. You know, you'd have that rhetoric flying about. But the average Reformer would say, like, no, the individuals who are in the Roman Catholic Church still, uh, they're part of a church that's not Reformed. They're still you know, part of the you know, so-called invisible church, the Church of Christ, the body of Christ. Rome would not grant that for centuries to those who belong to the uh, reformers' uh, churches. Instead, they would say, like, no, you're outside the church, you know, you're susceptible to damnation, uh, until Vatican II, in which they ironically now call us uh, ecclesial communities. They won't call us churches, but they'll call us ecclesial communities, which if you know your Greek, ecclesial uh, is, the, excuse me, uh, Latin, ecclesial is the word for church. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense. We're ecclesial communities, but we're not churches, which means that we're church communities, <laughs> but we're not churches. So, um, And they even have in Vatican II, as I recall, like we still have, even though we don't recognize the authority of the Pope, we still have common ties to the Pope by virtue of his What office. year was that, Andrew? That was the Vatican II in the 1960s. 60s, it? it was yeah, 62, 63? 63 to 66. Okay. Or maybe... <clears throat> This leading to a place in Rome. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's why it's called Vatican too. Like they'll name the council after the location. So, mm-hmm. so a little bit ironic there. So, so Rome eased up, in other words. Uh, and I, I chuckle at the theology because it's like you're not part of the church, but you're an ecclesial community. What is there? Separ- separated brethren. <laughs> we are, too. yeah. Separated brethren is a common terminology for us. So well, it's good. They, I'm do glad they for view it. The Eastern Church the same way. They view the Eastern Church as as part of the church. It's interesting. Yeah. Now historically, you'd you'd have it where they would have they'd have rhetoric back and forth of like you're outside the church, you know, like you're not part of the one true church, and then that lightened up a lot quicker than with uh, those of the reformers' uh, church. Now the East, you'll get once again a lot of responses from the East, but officially from the East, everybody who's not part of the Eastern Orthodox Church is outside the one true church. Now, if you go to like some of our local ones here. Especially the laity, they'll say, like, well, no, you're Christian. They, they won't know this. I don't expect them to. Likewise, for our own, you know, won't know the, the level of detail of historical theology. But um, if you ask some of their priests, you know, it depends on who you ask. Some of them will be like, yeah, you're outside the church. <laughs> you're not part of the church. You know, or separated brethren. <laughs> no, you're, you're just outside the church. There's one church and one body of Christ, and you're outside of it. So uh, they'll come down more hard line on it. So I just point that out because Athanasius has the right theology of you cannot divide the church and for your benefit, for your knowledge, uh, you know, well, how do we answer that? Well, number one, we come from the Western church where we got kicked out by Rome. We didn't leave. We weren't schismatic. Uh, we were trying to reform the church and we ended up getting kicked out. Uh, a lot of people will point to Henry VIII of like, didn't he form his own church? Like he gets excommunicated is what happens. And even then, after Henry VIII, then we get back into communion uh, with Rome uh, after Edward during Elizabeth's time. And it's not until there is a call by the Jesuits, which is a society within Roman Catholicism, to overthrow Queen Elizabeth I. Then Elizabeth comes down hard against Roman Catholicism, and then she gets excommunicated. So it's a complicated history with uh, the Church of England uh, and the Church of the Isles. Of like, you know, who left who? Well, we got kicked out. That's <laughs> what ended up happening. And the same with Martin Luther. You know, here we are. A lot of churches are celebrating Reformation Day 
because it's closest to October uh, 31 when he nails the 95 Thesis on the uh, church door in Wittenberg. Then Luther, you know, doesn't ever leave. He gets excommunicated. He gets kicked out uh, attempting his reforms, as do many of the reformers uh, for that matter. So anyway, the response, because the Roman Catholics would then say, ah, you're outside the church, you know, we excommunicated you. And the response was like, you're the ones teaching false doctrine, you know, we're the one professing the doctrines of the early church. Uh, the church is not something that's a visible unity that you see. Only Christ knows who's part of his body. We know by virtue of professing the faith was delivered that we cling to that body of Christ, like the woman who knew if I just but touch his robes, I will be healed. So, But to get back to Athanasius here, in chapter 25, he ties in this verse that I quoted a moment ago, that St. Paul uh, draws from in Deuteronomy 21-23. About midway through uh, chapter 25, he mentions how if he, talking about Jesus, had not accepted death, uh, excuse me, Oh, I'm reading the wrong sentence there. Okay, it starts with the word for. For if he, that is Jesus, came himself to bear the curse which lay upon us, how else could he have, quote, become a curse, Galatians 3, if he had not accepted the death occasioned by the curse? In other words, Christ had to take on the curse that we receive, the curse of death. Quote, and that is the cross. For thus it is written, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 21, 23, Cursed is he who hangs from the tree. Paul will quote from this in his own epistles, pointing out that this is why Christ dies in this way. And you may think, tree, what are you talking about? The tree of wood, the wood of the cross. Moreover, if the death of the Lord is a ransom for all, and by his death, quote, the wall of partition, quoting from Ephesians, is broken down, and the call of the Gentiles affected, how would he have called us if he had not been crucified? For only upon the cross does one die with his hands stretched out. Many preachers have drawn from this. I've heard many a good Baptist um, preacher draw about how, how much does Christ love us. He loves us this much, making the sign of the cross. This dates back to Athanasius, pointing this out. Athanasius showing that Christ being crucified in this manner not only fulfills the law, but also demonstrates God's love for us, stretching out his arms to the east and to the west, just as the Psalms and as the prophets whom he inspired said, they will come from east and west, and they will dwell in the house of the Lord. They will come from the east and the west, and they will worship at Zion upon God's holy hill. And so, quote, Therefore it is fitting for the Lord to endure this and to stretch out his hands, that with the one he might draw the ancient people, talking about the Jews, and with, those, me, and with the other, those from the Gentiles, and join both together in himself. Paul echoes this. Paul talks about how through his own flesh that he makes out of the two people, the Israelites and the Gentiles, into one people of God. And so skipping to chapter 26, Athanasius continues, Therefore death upon the cross for our sakes was fitting and suitable, and its cause appeared to be consistent in every way. And there are solid arguments that the salvation of all had to take place in no other way than by the cross. So he is drawing upon the witness of the cross, which is our bold confession of faith, you know, that we believe that he was crucified. You know, we, we profess it in the Apostles' Creed, that he died you know, there on the cross you know, under Pontius Pilate, on a, under a specific Roman governor, and that he was raised from the dead. And uh, Athanasius talks about, I'm quoting mid-sentence in chapter 26, that did he leave himself unseen? So in other words, the way he's wording this <coughs> is that Christ does not leave himself unseen. He doesn't hide his death. 
but rather by far he made creation witness to the advent of her own creator, not tolerating his temple, the body, to remain dead for long, but having only shown it to be dead by the conjunction of death with it. On the third day he immediately raised it up, bearing the incorruptibility, impassibility of the body as trophies and victory over death. This is It's wordy, but it's beautiful and poetic what he's saying here. That through Christ's death, that he bears witness on the cross, there on the hill of Calvary, for all to see outside the city, his own death. And not only that, not only the people, but creation itself. Creation sees its maker. And if you recall the gospel accounts, you know, not only is there a storm, there's lightning, you know, coming from heaven, but also there is the rocks cracking of the earthquake, you know, occurring, which tears the temple uh, curtain in two, you know, prophetically bearing witness that Christ has removed the barrier between God and between man. Because if you recall, only the great high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year to offer atonement for the people, which the Jewish people recently celebrated, although they can't do it as they traditionally did because there's no temple anymore, but they celebrated Yom Kippur, you know, the Day of Atonement. And that curtain, which divided the temple, you know, from the Holy of Holies, where only the great high priest can enter, from the holy place where only the priests and Levites could enter, is torn in two. And therefore, you know, bearing witness that we are reconciled to God, that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. The author of Hebrews, when we did that Bible study here in Sunday school, you know, months ago, probably now about a year ago, he really anchors us, you know. You know, I, I bear that it's Paul who wrote Hebrews. Others will disagree, but regardless of who wrote it, it's inspired by the Word of God, by the, the Holy Spirit. And Hebrews points out, that this tearing of two of the temple is done through the body of Christ Jesus. So now we can boldly go before the throne of grace. And we say this in our liturgy as well. We can reach the Father through the Son who tore that temple curtain in two. And it says that we boldly go before that throne of grace. We don't hesitantly, we don't have to look with our heads down. We should still have fear of the Lord but we can now boldly go forward to the throne of grace and ask the Lord, forgive us of our sins because of he who came for us and who died for us, your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Athanasius says that Christ bears his own body. Because remember, he's resurrected in the body. A lot of people today, a lot of Christians don't realize when it talks about resurrection, it's not like a spiritual resurrection. It's not like Jesus appears as a ghost. It's very clear in the Gospels that the tomb is empty. Jesus himself addresses this with his own disciples of eating and drinking. See, it is me. Touch, fill, believe, do not disbelieve. It's showing that he is not a ghost. It even says in the Gospel accounts of like they think, you know, like it's a ghost that they see at first. And Christ, you know, knowing their minds, you know, instantly starts feeding and eating and drinking and showing himself to be real and physically there. And Athanasius points out, this is Christ even bearing his own body as a trophy. I have conquered death. It has no hold over me. Death cannot kill Christ again, even in the body, for he is in the renewed, spiritual, resurrected body. Athanasius continues, talking about, you know, why this period of time, and I remember thinking this as a kid, you know, like, why, you know, like, he was dead for three days and he came back. 
And he even asks the question for us. Athanasius continues about midway in chapter 26. He, talking about Jesus, could have raised the body immediately upon death and shown it alive again. But for seeing well, the Savior did not do this. For someone might have said that he hadn't died at all, or that death had not fully touched him if he had shown the resurrection immediately. And guess what? Even despite the fact that Christ was dead in the tomb and raised on the, uh, from the grave on the third day, very early on, there is this uh, theory of, oh, it's called the swoon theory, if you ever hear. Christ just looked like he died. He actually just passed out. They thought he was dead. And they took him down, they put him in the uh, uh, cave, and then he you know, revived himself and then came out. It's the worst theory for trying to disprove Christianity that I've ever heard. And the reason why is because, hey, the Romans, you know, like, if you didn't crucify, you didn't kill the man who was crucified, like, your your head was going to be gone, number one. Number two, you hear in the gospel accounts that the Romans did what the Romans always do, you know. Number, uh, on that point 2A, so stick with me here, remember that the Sanhedrin, they come and say, hey, it's about to be the Passover, that is our holy day. Do not defile our holy day with dead bodies hanging. Because typically they just leave you hanging there until the crows, you know, came and, and did with you, uh, with your body. And they would leave you up there rotting as a corpse. It's horrible. That's what they would do to send the message to the people. That's what the Romans did. But the Jews come and say, take the bodies down because we don't want them defiling our holy day because death is unclean. And we're about to have the Passover. And so Pontius Pilate says, like, Go and kill them, you know, like if they're not already dead, kill them and then take the bodies down. And so what do they do? What they commonly did throughout the Roman Empire, they would break your legs because the way you would be able to breathe is you had to pull your body up to breathe and gasp and then go back down. It's horrible. And so they broke the legs of the man on the left and on the right and they died. They go to Christ and what do they do? They notice he's already dead. So the swoon theorist is like, ah, they, they got fooled by Jesus. But what do they do? They take a spear and they plunge it into his heart to kill him, or at least to make sure he is dead. And he doesn't react. He's already dead. It says he's given up his spirit. They plunge the spear. There's no reaction, except for the reaction of the body, of the water and the blood coming out, symbolizing baptism and the Lord's Supper, you know, by the way. Everything that they do, you know, symbolizes what God has done for us. And then they take the body down and they bury it. So... Even if you go with, like, oh, Jesus didn't really die at that moment. He, quote, breathed his last, but who really knows? How could the author have known that, you know? Well, hey, Jesus told them after his resurrection, you know, like, this is what I, you know. Y'all weren't even there, disciples. Matthew, you weren't there. You know, Luke, you weren't there. You know, so they all learned from Jesus telling them, you know, after his resurrection. And, uh, and for the case of Luke, of hearing it from, directly from the apostles, um, anyways, so not only that, but you also see that uh, the Romans ensure that he is dead. Even if you think, like, oh, he didn't really die at that point. Well, he is sure enough dead, you know, when the spirit goes into the heart and the body comes down. And then the swoon theory further, if you think that somehow, like, they missed the heart. He thought they got the heart or something, you know, like, but he's still alive. You're telling me that a man who has been brutally whipped, you know, with, you know, not just like with a, a common whip, with a whip, with bones, with shards, with glass, with nails, you know, who has been uh, beaten up like that, who has carried his cross and was so physically weak they had to get uh, Simone of Serene to carry the rest of the, of the cross and then put him on that cross. And he's been up there for hours, you know, rubbing his back every time that he's going up and down to breathe, still somehow survived after the spear goes into his side, is buried into a tomb with 
a large, uh, it's not just a boulder like you see on some illustrations. It'd be a round, because you got to you'd use the, the tomb for multiple people. So it was a round, kind of millstone esque looking thing, and you'd have a little groove. So you'd roll it in, and then it takes several men to roll it out. It's a one way in, you know. Like you can't physically, if you're the strongest man in the world, be on the other side and like try to do this number to roll it out. It's just it's not happening, you know. And yet somehow this brutally maimed man opens it up, you know, and gets out. So spoon theory is just a ridiculous theory. Some people still abide by it, but they, they don't even know the logistics. And nine times out of ten, when I've encountered people talking about it, they don't know the details of like you don't know what really happens in the forty lashes a crucifixion, and how the Jews buried the dead in this time period. You know, that dog won't hunt, as we say around here. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So anyway, going back to Athanasius, why this interval? You know, like, we still ironically have people who believe in a swoon theory, and, um, and it came about quickly. But remember what the gospel says. Uh, the gospel says that very quickly the Sanhedrin were like, the body is gone, so they pay off the guards saying, you're going to say that the disciples came in the middle of the night and stole the body. They don't come up with the swoon theory, like because they know like that's that's ludicrous. No one's gonna believe that. But if we say that the disciples ambushed and rolled the stone away and took the body out, that one makes a lot more sense. So we're gonna pay you off to say this, you know. So that's just another reason why like, the swoon theory doesn't hold any water. But so you have this three day interval, and then you have the question of like why does this happen? And Athanasius answers it quote Had the interval between death and resurrection been within that same day? the glory of incorruptibility would have been obscure. What does he mean by incorruptibility? The body dies, the body is corrupt. The body returns to the dust. And after three days, the body is definitely decomposing and is starting to you know, fall apart. You know? It is not going to be the same. It is definitely uh, putting out a stench. Remember about Lazarus. You know, Lord, he's been dead you know, for four days. And the Jewish eyes are like, after day three, like, it is, it is corrupting, you know, at this point. And the famous line in the King James Version, Lord, he stinketh, you know, like, Lord, it will smell, you know, like, don't do this, you know. Uh, Martha and Mary almost like, please don't traumatize us. He's dead. This is bad enough. And he says, like, I, that's when he has the famous line, like, I am the resurrection and the life, you know. And then he says, roll the stone away. He ignores him. Lazarus, come out. And that's why everyone's just like amazed. Not only has he raised the dead, it's been four days. There is no doubt the man was dead, you know, for Lazarus. You come up with a lot of other swoon theories for him. Like, oh, he merely he was buried alive. Sadly, his illness appeared to make him die. He was in a coma or something. It's been four days. He's been wrapped up, you know. He hasn't eaten, had any water or anything. Uh, if he wasn't dead then from the illness, we killed him, you know, yeah. by then. Uh, and then with our Lord, he comes out incorruptible, you know, after being maimed so horribly, you'd have all these open wounds that would speed up the corruption, but he comes out incorruptible in the new body. Although he does retain his wounds of the cross in order to show it is me. You know, like if you have any doubts, it is me. So death may not, excuse me, so that death might be shown in the body. He raised it on the third day. Yet last, excuse me, yet lest by raising it up when he remained for a long time, been completely corrupted, he should be disbelieved as though he bore not his own, but another body, for, because of the length of time, one might distrust what appeared and forget what happened. Therefore he waited no more than three days, nor put off for long those who had heard him about the resurrection. But while the word was still echoing in their ears and their eyes, were still expecting and their minds were in suspense. 
And those who put him to death and witnessed the death of the lordly body were still living upon the earth in the same place. The Son of God himself, after an interval of three days, showed the body, which had been dead as immortal and incorruptible, as it was demonstrated to all. The body died not by the weakness of nature of the indwelling word, but in order that death might be destroyed in it through the power of the Savior. In other words, he awaits his three days, comes out to show to all those whom he had been prophesying that this would happen and he would be risen from the dead had occurred. And you hear that in the gospel accounts. And he keeps saying, like, this is what was supposed to happen. This is what was supposed to happen. This is what fulfilled the scripture. He walks with uh, the two men who are leaving from Jerusalem. And they're like, they're so sad and depressed, you know. And this stranger comes up and they don't recognize this Jesus. And they should. They're one of the disciples. You have to remember that the disciples have the inner 12. But there's also the 72 who went out. And there's even more who followed Jesus. And they're one of at least that 72 or other disciples who followed Jesus and were probably at the Lord's Supper. We just think of the 12 because we see Da Vinci's classic, you know, of the 12. And, and I don't blame him. He's, he's focusing and he's doing this to focus on those apostles. But really, you know, it seems like there was more than just the inner 12. Because these two, when they finally hear the stranger talk about, don't you know all this was supposed to happen? And he opens the scriptures, the Old Testament to them. The, the Messiah had to die and be risen from the dead, you know. And then he they says to him, you know, like, we're going to stop here at the end. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep going on. No, no, stay with us, stay with us. And then Jesus relents, you know, and they still don't know it's Jesus. And then it's in the breaking of the bread. When Jesus breaks the bread, they're like, this is the Lord. And instantly, you know, <coughs> like he's gone, you know. Then that's how they, they see him. Uh, a deep text in Acts. Because it also reminds us, every time we break the bread and drink the wine, Jesus is with us, you know, just as much as he was with those two, opening up the scriptures to them. So, we see that um, in chapter 27, we're going to have to break this one up again. This was a big section, so that's quite all right. In chapter 27, Athanasius continues. He's now really emphasized that death has been dissolved, as he says. The cross has become victory over it. And that's why we continue to, to show the cross and not like a, an empty cave, you know, as our sign. You know, the, the sign of Christianity is the cross because it's the sign of victory. Where it looks like all is lost, all is one. It's no longer strong, but is truly itself dead. No mean proof, but an evident surety. It is despised by all Christ's disciples, and everyone tramples on it. That is death. Everyone tramples on death and no longer fears it. But with the sign of the cross and faith in Christ, tread it underfoot as something dead. And so, as he, he points out in halfway through chapter 27... <coughs> That devil who formerly exalted wickedly in death, its pangs have been loosed, Acts 2.24. Only he remains truly dead. And the proof of this is that human beings, before believing in Christ, view death as fearsome and are terrified by it. But when they come to faith in him and his teaching, they so despise death, they eagerly rush to it and become witnesses to the resurrection over it affected by the Savior. For even while they're still young in stature, they hasten to die. And not only men, but also women practice it for with exercises. It's become so weak, death has become so weak, even women who were formerly deceived by it now mock it as dead and paralyzed. For as when a tyrant has been defeated by a legitimate king and bound hand and foot, all those then pass by and mock him, hitting and reviling him, no longer fearing his fury and barbarity because of the victorious king. In this way death also, having been conquered and placarded by the Savior of the cross, 
and bound hand and foot all those in Christ who trample by on him. Death and witnessing to Christ, they mocked death, jeering at him, saying what was written above in 1 Corinthians, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, hell, where is your sting? If only we, O oh church, were to live like this today. But I fear that we have put more fear in death. And we wouldn't say it that way, but more fear and I just want to get more stuff and just enjoy this life. Which, enjoying this life is just another way of saying I fear death. <laughs> I want to get as much as I can out of this life because I fear what happens at death. That's not our call, of Christian. And the early church bore witness to this. Athanasius will bear witness to this through his life after he's written these words. Through all the... Uh, um, exiles and all the uh, the horrendous things he's put through by, ironically, by an emperor, Constantine, this victorious king that he's mentioning. This is something that the Romans would do like up to this time. They would capture a barbarian uh, king uh, and they would ridicule and they would mock him and they would bring him in uh, in a parade, in a victory parade. So the victorious general would go down the central avenue of Rome, and I've forgotten the name of it. It's not Flavian Way, but they would go down the central main street of Rome, throwing a victory parade. Everyone is celebrating. And they would have the pagan king, the, the barbarian king, uh, bound and, you know, caged. And people would be, like, you know, hurling insults at him, you know, like booing him and everything else. And Athanasius, you know, is not that far removed from this happening. And I didn't look it up, but it might have still, but it probably was still occurring even at this time, because, yeah, it definitely would have been, because it was not Christianized yet. And so he's making this link of, just like in Rome, we conquer a barbarian king, and this is what they do, you know, like they hurl insults, they spit at him, you know, like they even kick and revile, they'll bring him out, you know, and the people will mock him, like, ah, you thought you were a king, not anymore. He brings this Im imagery of, like, pagan Rome is doing this, this is what Christ has done, and this is why Christians don't fear death. And so when he's talking about, like, Men, you know, like even young men are like not fearful of death and women too are not. He's referencing the martyrs. He's referencing all those who have been through the great persecution that Athanasius was born right in the middle or right after. So it would be fresh in the minds of his readers. Of like, yeah, all those who jumped into the arena, you know, and or thrown into the arena to be killed and they bravely embraced death. And the pagans, the Romans were writing about like, they don't even fear it. Like the lines are coming out and they don't flinch or anything. They just take on death as though it was nothing. And Athanasius saying, like, yes, because it is nothing. Christ has conquered. Christ has a plan for our life. And if this is to be the end of it, then so be it. He'll raise the body anyway, and his will will be done. And that's a bold way of living that, that we have lost in the church. Uh, we've lost that because we not only fear death, but we fear even speaking life to people, of telling people that there is the way, the truth, and the life. That life does not have to be the way it is. We don't have to be so consumed with the things that we want to consume that we end up fearing death because we want to keep them. We don't have to be so consumed with our worries and our fears and anxieties that we fear to even share the good news of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. So we will put our bookmarks in chapter 28 and we will pick up there. So any questions before we wrap? Thank you for tuning in and listening to the podcast for this week. We're expanding our ministries at Church of the Good Shepherd and expanding our space as well in order to better accommodate our growing church family and also to minister to our children. If you feel led to give, please feel free to text the word SHARE to 1-888-364-GIVE. Or additionally, visit us at www.goodshepherdacna.com 
and go over to the menu item listed donate to donate online. We appreciate any help that you can give and we hope to see you soon. Come visit us on Sundays at 9 a.m. for Bible study and at 10.30 a.m. for Sunday worship. God bless.